I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's podcast includes interviews from our most recent MK3D show. Now, as you probably know, I usually do these on stage live at the BFI South Bank, but ever since lockdown, they've moved online. This has been the third online show. You can see the show on the BFI's YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and write in MK3D. It'll come up. Obviously, when we do the YouTube version, the whole show is an hour long, which means we have to cut down the interviews. But here at Kermode on Film, we're able to give you a much fuller picture. So, coming up in this week's edition of Kermit on Film, we're going to be speaking to Faisal Belifa and screen newcomer Roxanne Scrimshaw about the new movie Lynn and Lucy, a terrific movie that's coming out here in the UK very soon. Before that, we'll be speaking to Sam Riley, winner of a Kermode Award for his standout performance in Control some years ago, and now the co-star of Radioactive, which is currently available online. But we'll start with talking to the great Noel Clark, seen most recently in Series 2 of Bulletproof on Sky, a series he co-created with Ashley Walters. Our robbery in progress. Team are on route. Oh, stop it. I know you're only doing this to annoy me, you know. Bruv, I'm chasing criminals. Sometimes you act like a pair of petulant little sh**. On you a drama. After you, man. Thanks. Armed robbery. Gunfights in the street. 15 years on a job, I ain't never seen like that. We don't stop. I don't know what I'd do without you, man. So, it's a great pleasure to welcome to this uh, virtual MK3D, uh, Noel Clark, who, of course, Noel, you've been on the show in real life. You came on when we were yeah. still able to do it at the BFI South Bank, and I look forward to being able to do it back there again. But um, lovely, to, lovely to have you on the virtual show. How are you? How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, you know, getting by. It's, uh, everyone's kind of been through the same thing with the corona uh, lockdown, which uh, was, is tough um uh, i know it's it's sort of ending now but but it definitely you know was tough um and then all the stuff happening uh, you know with george floyd it's been it's been a tough few weeks but but i'm okay you know where are you i can, i see behind you just a, a a painted white brick where you could be in a gym you could, i've got no <laughs> idea of your location where are you i'm in my kitchen i'm in my kitchen which i find has a uh, good wi-fi um good light and uh, so, and, and this kind of white wall, which I, I kind of just like as a, as a backdrop, I've been using it for my career chronicles thing I've been doing. Okay. So, uh, I, yeah, I my, like it. my backdrop is a lot more cluttered, as you can see. I have a, yeah, where are you? 
I've got. Well, see, I like, well, I live in the New Forest. I live in Narnia. No, I mean you're you're a London boy, right? I grew up in North London, but I live in Hampshire, now, so I'm nice. I'm literally in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's really beautiful. The Wi-Fi signal is really terrible, but that's what Ooh, you know. Yeah. We have unicorns and fairies, but we just yeah. have, I don't have very good broadband. I think I would like that, man. Sometimes you just need to get away. <laughs> so, what have you been doing during lockdown? Have you managed to get work done? What have you been up to? Yeah, it's been interesting. So Bulletproof had just wrapped. We just wrapped on our um, South Africa special. So that's, that's sort of in, in, uh, in post-production. Um, Bulletproof has been incredibly successful, right? I mean, yeah. it's a sort of runaway hit, yeah? Yeah, it's been massively successful. And I think that um, something that can only go from strength to strength, really. You know, congratulations because uh, I know you because you you one of the co-creators. The three of you created it, so congratulations yeah. on on a runaway hit, Noel. Yeah, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. It was a uh, um, actually Nick came on later. It was something. Oops, Nick came on later. It was something Ashley and I had come up with uh, before that, and, right, and right. ended up taking it to Vertigo and whatnot. Um, so yeah, but very happy about that. And you know, uh, my production company, you know, had a show called The Drowning, which was um, sorry. Our production company had a show called The Drowning, which was um, uh, shooting in Ireland, and we had to shut that down. Um, okay. And they're just waiting for dates about when we can when we can restart it. Uh, and then you know, lockdown itself is just you know, it's given me time to to write, I guess. You know, so I've had a lot a lot of time to try and get some some writing done. So I've been uh, doing a, a lot of that as well as homeschooling which you've always been a prolific, mostly does <laughs> you've always been a prolific writer though no you've always i remember you saying once you said you know like, i've got you know i've got a drawer full of scripts yeah and you said that one of the great challenges was that when you first achieved fame through the you know kiddlehood and ad- adulthood movies that people would say okay can you do that and you could do it, yeah but i can also do They're this doing, and you'd have like yeah. a rom-com and a sports movie and all the rest of it. so have you yeah. always just kept prolifically writing always prolifically wrote uh written but it, it, you know with children you slow down i've slowed down massively <laughs> with children like i've got three three now and so you know what would take me seven days will now take me two months um so i've definitely slowed down uh in that regard um but still still do still always have two or three things on the go and also still have a lot of those what's what i find interesting is what's happened been happening recently is a lot of the stuff that I wrote years ago, I'm now realizing was so far ahead of itself that now it's all relevant. You know, like Bulletproof was planned seven years, years ago, for example, you know, and um, another, thing, another thing that I've just sent out um, to people was planned 10 years ago. You know, so a lot of the stuff I was writing, because I was always writing with that commercial mindset. So I was writing about cops and 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 spies and you know yeah. uh, and stuff like that. That that wasn't people were kind of like mm, not going to happen here. But now that TV's global and all these things are happening, suddenly I'm like, wait, have I got that? Have I got that script where he was like a a this or that or a superhero or that? And I look at it and I read it and I go, well, okay, look at actually you could actually update this, you know? So there's a bit of that going on as well, to be fair. 
What do you what do you think the the, the climate looks like outside of COVID? How much have things changed in the British film industry? Because you know, I once described you as a one man film industry. You're the kind <laughs> yeah. of person who, if if nobody else opened the door for you, you just kicked it down and did it yourself yeah. anyway. Yeah. How much is it still that, and how much have things changed? I think there is still ways to do that. I think uh, there are still people that can do that, but I think the industry is gradually and has gradually gotten more open where, you know, people are getting different people are getting, you know, more chances. It's still not enough, enough I might add, but are getting more chances. And I, I think that we still need to do more to, you know, the fact you had to describe me at that, the fact that you had to describe me that way is the problem because what should have happened is, and this is what we don't do enough in this country. What should have happened is, um, okay, kid, I would find after adulthood, the industry should have gone, oh, okay, here's this guy who's just written, directed, and starred in this film and has now won this Rise and Star thing. How do we take him in, mm-hmm. develop him, help him flourish, get him that next film, which can be a big American film, and then suddenly we have a black British director that is there you know, years ago, but our, our, we don't do that. We don't do that. So the reason you had to, the reason you called me that, which you were quite right to do. And you know, it was the, was the right thing to say was because after that happened and nothing happened, I then had to do it again. And then I had to do it again and I had to do it again and I had to do it again until people started saying, you know, lovely things like you said, or going, you know, you're one of the hardest working men in the industry. And I'm like, yeah, I have to be. That's what people didn't realize. I had to be because I wasn't being nurtured. Yeah. They weren't, they weren't nurturing me. Like to this day, you know, some of those uh, companies, you, you know, they've not made, they haven't put money into any of my stuff. You know, you think about the, the, the thing that's remarkable about that. No, is it two things? Firstly, you know, like you said, all those plaudits, you know, uh, actor, writer, producer, everything and the rising star award. Also, the fact that you made movies that didn't lose money at a time yeah. when most movies made in the UK lost money. That's and right. uh, I think around about the same time I was saying that the, the thing that you understood was, you know, exactly the thing that Roger Corman and the exploitation movie make, makers had made. This, there is a way of not losing money and right. then you could yeah. be adventurous beyond that. And yeah. again, I just find it really surprising that it wasn't immediately the case that that you know those doors were open for you although that said <laughs> surprising <laughs> no no that said it gave every it, i mean me particularly it gave me a sense of huge pride when yeah. i saw you up on that massive screen in star trek suddenly it was like yeah. us all going there yes <laughs> you know yeah. and i saw that in the biggest imax screen i've ever seen a movie oh, and your yeah. face was the size of a house <laughs> yeah. and it was an amazing experience but again the americans gave me that job like yeah, I wasn't yeah. being nurtured here. Like no one was nurturing me here, you know, or, or really, and it, that's not to say I wasn't getting jobs I, as a job in actor. I was getting the jobs that I deserved and not getting the ones I didn't. But in terms of people going, okay, but he's a filmmaker too. Like, let's nurture this. Let's, you know, let's do that. Like they, they used to do in America just wasn't happening, you know, just wasn't happening at, at all. And, uh, that it just, but I, I you know, that was it, a, has it, has it happened now? Has it happened now? Because now you're in this, you know, re, I mean, you know, like I said, Bulletproof is this huge, big hit. You have proved the point, Noel. I mean, it's not like yeah. you, you've beaten, you know, you've beaten everyone at their own game. Has it? So has it changed? 
well, there's a lot of people that are bitter about that. <laughs> so, so it hasn't changed with them. But I, I would say now, I think I definitely went through that that patch of like, oh, he's great. To like, oh God, this guy, why is he still here? Go away, blah blah. blah to, oh, he's been around for so long now that we just have to respect him. And I think there's definitely, you know, you got to think, you know, we did Kill Out of boom, big success, four three two one success. You know, story twenty four. I wrote, not really a success, um, but ambitious. You know, ambitious. You know, like who was doing? I was trying to do things back then. I was trying to do things that back then that would take British films just in a commercially different direction. And we weren't, people weren't ready. So story 24, I didn't direct, but not really a success, but then sold to America and was, was amazing uh, that it got an American sale and they were happy and blah, 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 blah. And then the distributor put it on, they put it on one screen for one day in America so they could unlock TV money and they made a, they made a bunch of money and it was great. And what did the British press do? They said, Ooh, Clark has lowest grossing film in the world. They couldn't look at the fact that a council estate kid had managed to make a film, then make a sci-fi that sold to America, that then was put on a screen for one day to unlock TV money and made the company's big money. They had to mm. go. They didn't, even, they didn't even mention in the article it was on one screen for one day. They just had to go, this is what we do here. And then Anomaly came out. And to be fair, I didn't write that. And maybe I should have done something I wrote. Proud of the director. And I really, really had developed as a director. But the film was just like, you know, I was done. I was done. After that film, I was done. I think it was like, I'd done that. I'd done that. And I was done. Um, you know, and I, I watch that now and I'm like, like I should have done something I, I've written. Then I just went back to the world. I kind of was like, okay, you need to reset. You need to reset yourself. Sorry about the drilling. There's builders. It's you need fine. To reset yourself. And so I reset myself. I had children. I started thinking like, think about, what you've done before. And then I started thinking, what if Sam had children? You know, what if that character had children? And then brotherhood came. From that point on, everyone said to me, firstly, no one wanted to make the movie, despite the success of all the others. Nobody wanted to make it. But luckily, Lionsgate made it. And then everyone's like, it's not going to work. We have Facebook now. We have, we have Twitter. We have, we have Netflix. We have YouTube. We have this. Even if you make one and a half million, consider that a success because that's the equivalent of what adulthood made years ago. And we beat all of them. We made like 3.9. Like, and, and after that point, I think people were like, okay, all right. And I think things improved again since then. Didn't Brotherhood pretty much clear its costs in the first weekend or something? And I yeah. remember the first, the first, cause it opened, I think you opened it on a Wednesday or Thursday. And I remember that it was just sold out screenings. And, sold it, and out. I remember you saying, that's it. The film paid for itself in like 48 yeah. hours. In 48 hours. Yeah. And, and, and it made, <laughs> went, went on to make double. Like we will definitely, people will definitely be getting money. Well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, and just to show how we're, we're advancing in only a couple of years. So Brotherhood was, there was a fight in a cinema somewhere and it was pulled out of uh, audience, right. pulled out of audience. And like we were livid and I was going to speak out and I was told, don't say anything. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't say anything. Don't, don't rock the boat. Like, you know, you just don't say anything and consequently didn't speak out. Two years later, Ratman's film gets pulled out of cinemas and the climate had changed so much to the point where they were like, yeah, speak about it. And when he spoke about it, what happened? The film just was like, yeah, it, got yeah. it got reinstated. It, the, the, the box office like doubled. And it's like, so the industry is advancing. Like people are now 
you know, you are able to kind of say your piece without fear of being like shut down and stuff like that. So yeah, you know, we're getting there. No, how old are you? All right, mate. Come on, Jesus. <laughs> just, I mean, I think I, mean, I say this. I say this affectionately. You're in danger of becoming an older statesman. I mean, it's like because you know the, the, because the history of it. Yeah, he's the elder statesman, a little bit of grey in the beard, yeah. you know. I mean, look at me, I've gone completely white. I look like Nick Lowe on a bad day now, but, you know. <laughs> I am now 44. Okay, are you still a child in that yeah. case? And I started in the business. This is an interesting thing people don't realise with me. I've, I've been around, I'm like the old couch in the corner. that They don't realise how much <laughs> they love that people like it, you know, until I've been, I grew up on screen. I've made all my mistakes publicly. Yeah. I didn't go to drama school. I didn't go to film school. All my mistakes and my successes have been public and out there and open to scrutiny. I started at 23. My first acting job was, was 23. And I did that. And everything since then has been public for everyone to kind of just go. Uh, uh, uh. And I've had to just learn to deal with that. What was your very first acting job? It was the pilot of a show that ended up being called Metrosexuality. Um, which again, way ahead of its time, Ricky Beadle, Blair writing about gay men having a, a, a straight son and multicultural people and black, you know, and just so like, when you think about that show now, you're like, wow, even a show now with two black gay men having a straight son and loads of multi uh, LGBTQ friends would be, and even now people would be like, okay, so yeah. back in 1999, 98, how far ahead of its time was that? So that was my first job. You're also a key role in the in for my money the, the the finest incarnation of Doctor Who the period in which I was watching Doctor Who because I had kids that were watching it and I hadn't <laughs> yeah. watched it I hadn't watched it since the days of Patrick Troughton probably <laughs> uh, you know suddenly with the, that's before your time incidentally you know because yeah, yeah. I'm a lot older than you and uh, and that was you know that again I think people still have huge affection for that particular period of Doctor 100%. Who that it, that was the that was the key Doctor Who hundred percent you know Chris coming in and then David coming in after was a key period but but again you know i feel like again it didn't really pop in america till matt came in right i'm always kind of like missing the boat <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like it re when matt came in is when bbc were like oh maybe we need to pull it back onto our channel and then it really popped in america before that it didn't really right. really pop but but you know it is what it is i enjoyed being in that show as one of the you know the first black companion another sort of boundary that I, i've broken and i enjoyed it immensely no i saw you tweeting recently about the uh the poster artwork the cover artwork for fisherman's friends tell yeah. me what that story tell me what the story is behind that because that seemed like a very strange thing indeed yeah i mean the story is and you know uh, I, I just want to add that i have the producers have spoken we know we have spoken since and people have apologized and seen seen what what was being you know what i was saying Okay. The story essentially is that, you know, they put a poster out and, and I wasn't on it. Now, a lot of people make their excuses about, well, your, your agent, this, that, and the other. Like, my agent's one of the best in the business. My, my, you know, my name was on there. My contract was, was watertight as per. It was in, in kind with other people's on there. So it comes down to the very, it comes down to marketing, right? I'm a businessman. You, you know about this stuff. It's how you market a film. So if you're, target that, if you're targeting a film at a certain demographic and that demographic you feel responds a certain way, that's the way you kind of make your posters. Nobody in there was consciously going, we have to take that person off. It was more about 
we have to target our demographic. We have to target the cities and the places in the UK we know are going to respond to this film and they are going to respond to this post the best. What they didn't think about was actually what they were doing and how that looks. Because it's not just about what it looks like. It's about they weren't thinking about what they were doing because suddenly that poster looking best and me not on there suddenly becomes about is the film going to make less money if we keep that one face on there that isn't in, 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 in keeping with what we believe our target audience is going to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's, what, that's essentially what it came down to, you know, because you have to look at, you have to look at the and billing is some of the biggest billing. When you get and, it's because you are of stature yeah. or whatever. And you, oh, have yeah, to yeah. Think, you have to think about this when people say, well, is it, you know, think about if I wasn't me, and it was a white actor who was an Olivier winner, a BAFTA winner, was in number one films, had written, directed number one films, uh, was in number one TV shows and was still relevant and also probably a bigger name than three quarters of the cast on there. How would they not be on there? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no way they wouldn't be on there. So essentially, when you start thinking about it in all those ways, then you realize that the, whether it was unconscious or not, you realize that the only reason... I wasn't on there was because of the way I look. It's a weird thing as well, because I really, I mean, funny enough, I thought your performance of the record company executive was the, <laughs> yeah. thing, that, was the thing that rang truest in that film. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I don't think anybody thinks it's a gritty, oh. tough look at real life in Cornwall. I mean, I think yeah. if you put it next to Mark Jenkins' bait, it's evident which one actually yeah. looks like Cornwall and which one yeah. looks like, yeah. you know, a, a picture postcard. And I, and I enjoy the film. Like, yeah, I so enjoyed, do I, it's fun. Yeah. I enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed the film. I enjoyed, you know, it, it, it wasn't a slight on anyone. And the problem was that nobody saw it as a problem. And that's the problem. Yeah. 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 And, and I don't, I don't, I don't apologize for speaking out. I don't apologize for talking about saying that the cast didn't speak up for me because they didn't. And it's not about, you know, a lot of people were straight on. Well, since when did the cast have anything to do with the poster? It's not about that. No one's trying to say that the cast should be calling the producers and going, yo, 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 what's going on? It's really about going, hey, mate, I saw the poster and, you know, is, is that, are you cool with that? Like, what, what's the deal here? Like, nobody reached out and they didn't reach out, not because they're bad-minded, because they didn't see it as a problem. No, and no, that sure. is the problem. So, I mean, presumably the success of Bulletproof in which, you know, I mean, you own that thing. It's like, yeah. it's yours, right? That must, be, that must be a huge sense of achievement to own something that is as successful as that. Yeah, it's a massive sense of achievement. I think, you know, Ashley and I worked incredibly hard. You know, the people that came, Vertigo, uh, Nick worked incredibly hard. And, you know, you know, we have to thank Sky for being forward thinking enough. I mean, to be fair, it doesn't fit on a lot of other channels. So it's not like I can suddenly say, well, ITV should have made it. It's not an ITV show, do you know what I mean? But, yeah. you know, you, you, if you know your market, you kind of have to know what channels, what goes on. But for Sky to actually go forward with it in what some people would still say was a risk, uh, was very forward thinking. And I'm always, and I'm appreciative that they did. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, to, to, to know that then the Americans buy it as well. Again, yeah, yeah. Like CW buy it and they don't just go, Oh, we're going to put it on at midnight or, you know, we're going to, we're going to just re- remake our own version. They go, we like this enough that we're going to show this at nine o'clock on a, on, on a whatever day, a good day. And we're going to advertise it. And it did well. I mean, you had their when it came out on their summer schedule, you had like shows like arrow and flash doing like 
900 to 1.1 and yeah. our new British show that no one ever heard of doing like six, 700,000, like it done well. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, live views. And then of course you get your, 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 your downloads and your whatever it's called these days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. CW app or whatever it's called, but you get all of that on top, but it did well. And they were like, we want season two and, and season two just started on, um, on the 10th of June, you know, and they're ecstatic. And I just think like, it's amazing that these two guys who bearing in mind, you know, we've both had up and down careers. Ashley's had up and down career. These two guys that came from places where they could quite easily have ended up in jail or, or worse have now created and been involved in a, in a show that is now on screens in America for millions of people to watch. And you started when I asked you how you were and you said, well, you know, lockdown's been strange and everything that's been happening, you know, in America and here. How, how have you responded to, to what's been happening with the, the Black Lives Matter protests? How is it, you know, what's your feeling about what's going on at the moment? I mean, it's just one of those, I just think it's just, it, 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 like people have had enough, you know, I think me, Someone sent me that video on the morning before I even saw the news. I was like, what am I watching it? And I watched that whole video, not realizing I was watching right. a man. I watched the whole video and thinking, why have my friend sent me this, not realizing I was watching a man die. And then got on my exercise bike, clicked on my laptop and saw the news and was like, oh, you know. And I just think that there's no real explanation for this. It's, 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 it's just ridiculous and, and disgusting. And, you know, and then the same day, the Amy Cooper thing happened or the day before where Amy Cooper tried to get that guy, you know, the dog walker and she got on the phone and said, I'm being attacked by a black man. Like, and when he's standing like 20 feet away filming her and I was just like, people were so shocked and it just got me because I was like, mate, people are so shocked. They're like, what a terrible day. This has happened. And that's happened. I was like, that's just a Tuesday in a black person's life. It's just a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Like things like this happen to me and happen to others all the time. Those are extreme examples for sure. Like, I, and I wouldn't wish that on, on, on anybody, wish those on anyone. But things like that just happen all the time. And I just was like, I've had enough, man. So that is, that's the day I put the poster. I was like, I've had enough because, you know, you know, I, you know, when the thing came out, I was, I was, told oh don't say anything about it and I'm, I'm i'm fed up of not saying anything about anything do you know what i mean so when you say I you're just, told so who who would say to you don't say anything about it i mean just people you, like people above because even if you make a film they're still they're still execs or they're still they're still distributors or they're still you know people that stand to gain financially or whatever you know and don't want the boat rocked or whatever right else, okay you know and there's been, you know, it's much like, you know, the, the women thing with the me too, you know, and they were always, don't, 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 don't say anything and all that. And it's just like, you know, everyone had to check themselves a couple of years ago and go, Oh, well, what have I said? And what about, you know, how about, you know, and it's just like, it's just like that, you know, so I've just had enough, you know, and then, you know, two days later I walk into, to ADR on, on a show I'm doing and I walk into the, to, to the ADR place and bear in mind, I'm anxious. We first time I've left, really left uh, quarantine to, to work. Yeah. I go to, you know, I walk into the building and I say, is this the place for ADR? And I say, yeah, this is. And then just proceed to just look at me. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm Noel. I'm here for ADR. Oh, I thought you were a delivery driver. You know, I mean like that is 
just unconscious profiling. It's unconscious profiling. Like, I don't think the person's a bad person. It's just unconscious profiling. And a lot of people say, well, maybe you look like a delivery driver. Irrelevant. The next thing to say is, how can I help you? Regardless of what I look like. That's the next thing to say. How can I help you? I shouldn't have to then go, I've asked you if this is ADR. Sure. Silent. Yeah, I, I shouldn't yeah, have sure. to then, I shouldn't have to then go, um, no, well, I'm here for ADR. You should say, how can I help you? And then when I do that, you don't go, oh, oh, okay. I thought you were a delivery driver. I mean, it's just, but that is just a Tuesday. That's just a Tuesday for us. And it's just like, we've had enough. We've had enough. And do you think it's going to change though? Do you think we are, I mean, people are talking, you know, on the news and in public about this being a moment of change that it will not, it, it can, things cannot remain unchanged now. Do they you think that's they, true? They, they can't, they just simply can't. And I think people that try and hold on to a way where they're not going to make their shows or their crews or their offices diverse will, will die out. Uh, uh, I don't mean literally die, but you know, we'll, 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 we'll fade away and, and, and I'll be glad <laughs> because, because it's just like, you know, people need opportunities, you know, and you know, yeah. if they're not getting the opportunities, they can't, you know, people need to be educated, you know, young, young children of color are not told they can be, you know, they see the rappers, they see the actors, they see the footballers and they're lauded and applauded and <clears throat> they're not, educated enough to say well all right if you're a great footballer but you get injured you can be a coach you can be a physio <clears throat> you can be a manager they're not told that okay mate your acting isn't quite you can be an agent right. be they're not educated like, they're not told so it's 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 all or nothing it's like i'm going to be the rapper the actor the footballer and if i don't become one of those boy i'm just going to go back and go do what i need to do and like that we need to educate and we need to kind of really show young people there's another way. And just trying to trot me out every now and again and go, well, look, he, he done it. It's not enough. Firstly, I won't have that. And I don't do that. Even for BAFTA, I'm on the film committee or whatever. I don't, they don't trot me out to, 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 to uh, when the, the thing happened to them recently with the diversity. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. There was a couple calls to me. Well, do you think, no, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to come out and, and, and say this, that, and the other, you know, let it, let it, let it come to you. And then we can talk, you know, yeah. Are you still, uh, you still a big fan of uh, MMA, which I never knew what it was until you explained it to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. That's what I put on first thing in the morning. So when I get up in the mornings, because I get up every morning like, around six, I can't go to the gym, so I get on the exercise bike to get my steps in. And you know, I recall all the UFC stuff, which is the major main brand of MMA, and I just put that on because I don't have to pay attention. So I watch about half an hour of news see what Piers is rabbit and I about, you know, who he's annoying. <laughs> and then I'm like, put the MMA on and I just, I just have that there and I can just cycle and watch that and, you know, get a bit of work done. Uh, so I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I never got I, to I do mean, that movie. It's, yeah, I know. And you said you were going to, and, uh, yeah. you know, presumably at some point that, that will happen. I mean, I honestly didn't know what it was. And I said, <laughs> what have you been doing? You said, I've been doing a lot of MMA. And I went, what the hell is MMA? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i was doing loads of it because uh, we were going to do a movie uh me being a cage fighter and i put on a i put on about three stone and then it just sat on me i've only recently lost it okay. hey no i put on about three stone and it was nothing to do with me playing the role of a cage <laughs> fighter all right it's just to do with age you know <laughs> yeah yeah but i've only recently lost it and uh i don't know if that will ever happen because now you know obviously now i'm like well actually 
would it make a film or should it be a four part TV? Do you know what I mean? There's a lot more, there's a lot more character development now. And I never thought I'd say this. I'm a film guy. You know, I love movies. I I loved movies and I was always like, bah, television. Ha 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 ha. You know, (laughs) I would act in it and all that kind of stuff. But you know, I want to be a film star. But actually now TV is so much, I don't want to say better because I always love movies. I will always love movies. My kids, I've been taking them to the cinema since each one, since they were like 18 months old. Just yeah, like, yeah. this is the cinema. Our family loves the cinema. Come sit with me. And my kids love films. They're like, but you can get so much more character to development in a full part. You can get so much more texture, so much more nuance in a TV thing. And so, you know, when I think about that project or other projects, I'm like, hmm, actually, this was a film, but maybe I should, you know, so that's been happening a lot recently too, which is yeah. probably why I've been, quiet on the film front since brotherhood i want the next thing i want to direct i want it to be different enough to those different enough to those because i've done that you know we've yeah, got rap sure. man now we've got those young people that are living it i've done it so it has to be different it has to be either something that is more articulate and intelligent uh or it needs to be something that is that my kids can watch yeah do you, yeah do you know what i mean yeah uh, but tv a lot of things i've transferred over to tv and and uh, are looking at those well, I mean, lockdown's really changed things for me because during lockdown, I've watched, I mean, like pretty much all of The Wire now. And I mean, you know, and I know, I know it's like I'm 20 years behind the curve here, <laughs> yeah. but I'm sitting yeah. there going, this is just unbelievably good. Yeah, because yeah, I, yeah. Because I just, for ages, I never had any chance to watch yeah. television. I just, you know, I watch movies and it is yeah. just that kind of long form development. The fact that characters can progress over progress, a long period man. of time. It's, and, and nothing yeah. better than something happens in a season one. And you, you never forget it, it's there, but you don't pay any attention to it. And then somebody does something in season four and goes, remember you did that to me back then? And you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I rem- do you remember that? And do you know what I mean? It's like, you can do all of that textured stuff, which is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been really great talking to you. And uh, I look forward to whatever it is you do next. Thank um, you. You know, I, I, I remain your biggest fan. I think you're... Uh, I, I, think- I, wanted to, I just want to say, I want to thank you for always having my back, always supporting me, even through the projects that weren't good, your advice and your, your candid honesty, you know, you know, to the point where I always used to say to you, I don't pay any, t- any attention to anyone else, but you, <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to sincerely thank you because I really, really appreciate it. I really do. Well, it's been, it's, you know, it's been a pleasure and a privilege and I just look forward to you continuing to kick down doors that anyone doesn't open for you. So no, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Take care. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Mark Kermode, and you're listening to the Kermode on Film podcast. Now, before the break, you heard from Noel Clark. Next up... It's Sam Riley, Kermode Award winner and all-round superstar. Sam co-stars with Rosamund Pike in Radioactive, a film about the life and times of Marie and Pierre Curie. We'll hear from Sam in a moment, but first, let's hear the trailer for his new film, Radioactive, which is available online now. I read your paper. It contains some exceptional science. My instinct is that there is another element. You think you found an undiscovered element? Science is changing. And the very people who are running science believe the world was flat. Leave my laboratory. If my science doesn't speak for itself, then you have gravely misunderstood it. I'm going to prove them wrong. We all thought that atoms were finite and stable. Well, some of them are not. I have called this radioactivity. Our discovery could cure cancer. Extraordinary. You changed the world. Our work's been nominated for the Nobel Prize. The commendation only mentions my name. You stole my brilliance. How dare you take their applause? This is bigger than both of us. I just wanted to do good science. There are those that say that radium is making them sick. The question can be raised whether mankind benefits from knowing the secrets of nature. I have been haunted my entire life trying to understand the impossible. This is my fight, and I will win it. Well, now we're very pleased to welcome to the virtual MK3D, Sam Riley. Sam, I cannot help but notice that you have brought a friend with you. I have. My, my favourite <laughs> prize, the commode, just to remind you to be nice. Do you remember, I don't know whether you remember this, but the acceptance speech that you gave when you, when you received it, because those, those things are fairly rare, and you got that for control. And, um, and you, we, you got the statue and you looked at it and then you realized that it, it doesn't say anything on the bottom of them. We, 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 you know, they're, they're homemade. And you looked at it and you went, my name's not on it. Were you just going to give it to whoever turned up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember that. that was a long time ago now. It's, God, it's nearly 15 years since we shot it. We shot it in 2006. And That's then it was Cannes 2007 when that ball. Wow. It, it's tough. It, does that make you feel really old that it was that long ago? A little, yeah. <laughs> A little bit. I think the last time we managed, we, we, I was going to do yours and uh, your radio show for Brighton Rock 10 years ago. That's right. And yeah. it, you asked me one question, which was, am I still smoking? And then, the, <laughs> and then it got cut off. It's, it seemed like I'd hung up in outrage. <laughs> And that was, that was the last time we spoke. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sam, let's let's cut straight to the chase. Are you still smoking? Only when I'm nervous. Oh, very good. Okay, so not at the moment. So, uh, listen, where are you? I, I, I'm I, I'm currently upstairs in in my house, which is why we have this curtain behind me. Where are you? I'm upstairs in my house as well, in my office. I suppose. And where is you? In Berlin. I'm living in Berlin. I've been there for twelve years. Oh wow. Yeah. Whereabouts? Was, I live in Seelendorf, the old um, American sector. 
if you still describe it like that. But it's been a good place to be during a pandemic. Yeah, what's it like there? Well, it's been, it's been strange. A lot of the things I used to take the mickey out of the Germans for, their ordinary and following the rules have been quite useful, actually, recently. So I've stopped teasing them. It's, we've had rather the strange phenomenon that there's been so few cases that people have been struggling to believe it exists, you know, so that's been the wow. weird. But I've been having one eye on England, obviously, the whole time, but we probably better not talk about that. But Okay, Sam, so it, just okay, imagine you are speaking to a small child or a Labrador puppy. Are, has there been any lockdown? Are people moving around? How has oh, it managed yeah. to be contained? Well, they, they locked down very early. We locked down even earlier than in England. And now they've, they're loosening the lockdown. My son's back in kindergarten. And I'm even, they're opening the cinemas again, incredibly. Wow. I spoke to my agent the other day. I'm the only client with a film coming out in the cinemas. We never thought that we'd see that day. <laughs> That's astonishing. So the cinemas are open or they are going to open? They're going to open soon. The restaurants are opening and, you know, you sign something when you go in the restaurant to show that you've been there for the contact tracing and what have you. Yeah. But it's very strange. You know, I've been obviously been concerned of what's going on at home for my family. Of course. And watching the difference of, you know, the, the vast difference between how they've handled everything. And what's your, I mean, it sounds to me like the way they've handled it in Germany is, is much more effective. What was the word you used? Or the, the word you used? Ordently. The Germans, well, I mean, a lot of those cliches, you know, how well organized they are, that they always, you know, if you park wrong here in Berlin, you'll have three or four people coming out of shops to tell you that you've parked incorrectly. Whereas if you, park, if you park wrong in the UK, people just stand around to wait to watch you get ticketed and laugh at you. Yeah, or in Leeds, you know, some you'd never go up to someone who parked wrongly. You'd be, you know, you'd get headbutted or something like <laughs> here. Here, everyone takes their civic duty very seriously, which actually is working out pretty well for them at the moment. I was in Berlin recently. I'm, I'm, I'm not well-traveled at all, but I was there for the Berlin Film Festival. I mean, it seems like an age ago now. It was actually only a few months ago. I know. Yeah, we were there. It's crazy, isn't it? And I did, I did all the things, you know, all the touristy things. You know, I went to the, to the German Film Museum, which was great. I went to Bowie's house. I, you know, I did, I did all the things that you were meant to do. And I thought it was astonishing. I, I thought it was absolutely beautiful. It was like wherever you looked, there was culture and history and people were friendly. And it was, I just thought, this is amazing. You, you could live here quite easily. I mean, I was really astonished by, by just how welcoming the city was. Yeah, they really are. I mean, I think people would say the Berliners are specifically different from the rest of Germany, obviously, a bit like Londoners, I suppose. But, but it is very warm. You know, I came here... Because my wife, Alexandra, we met during control. Yeah. I'm from Leeds, obviously, originally. And I came here and just fell in love, fell in love with the place. And at the time, you know, it was, quicker, it was quicker and cheaper to get a flight from Berlin to London than it was to get a train from Leeds. So I didn't really feel like I was missing out on anything. Now, you know, you said that your agent said you are one of the very few people that actually has a film opening. Um, we're here to, to talk about Radioactive, which was going to open in UK cinemas March 20th. In fact, I went to the National Press Show on the Monday for it to open. And then by Thursday, of course, everything had been cancelled. So is that getting a theatrical release uh, in Berlin or is it another film that you have opening? 
No, it's the, it's radioactive is getting a theatrical release here. Great. Um, and it's going straight to, I think it's doing a VOD or whatever they call it. Yes, straight video to, on demand. Straight from to video again. Well, so you, straight, straight <laughs> to streaming, which now, of course, uh, actually, weirdly enough, um, because of everything that's happening with, uh, with, with, the, uh, with the pandemic, loads of things that are, I mean, even the Academy have changed their rules so that straight to streaming films can, nom- can qualify for Academy. Oh, really? Have they? Okay. Yeah, this year. You had, to, you had to have had a theatrical release planned. So, for example, Spike Lee's, Spike Lee's film, Defy Bloods, which comes to Netflix, um, won't have a theatrical release, but it is eligible for the Oscars because they've changed the rules because they understand that so many films during this period don't have a theatrical release. But it must be great that it is going to get a theatrical in, 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 in Berlin. Will you be able to go and see your movie in a cinema? I don't know. You know, I'm still slightly nervous of going into these although it's allowed and there, there are so few cases i i somehow I'm, I'm still nervous about going in restaurants or going in cinemas or whatever i don't think i'm gonna i mean i've seen it a couple of times already um so i'm, I'm not sure i should i'm going to send my friends Okay. All right. Well, look, so, so for those who haven't seen it, um, tell us a story. Obviously, firstly, it's, it's directed by Marjan Satrapi. Tell us about working with her. Well, I met Marjan many years ago. She, my wife was on the jury in Cannes in 2009, I think, and Marjan was on the, on the jury with her. So we met then and became friendly. Um, and I heard about the project. I don't know. I'm rubbish with dates. A couple of years ago now. Yeah. And uh, I was very keen to work with her because I love Persepolis, which was the movie she, she sort of broke through with, an animated film um, based on her life. And um, I knew Rosamund, was, Rosamund Pike was going to be playing Marie Curie. So that was obviously appealing. But the funny thing was, is that they, in order to, you know, as part of my audition, I had to do a chemistry test with her. What? Which I thought was, was incredibly <laughs> thorough. <laughs> well, I'm never going to pass a chemistry test. It was crap at that. But I realized <laughs> that that is a cinematic term for seeing whether we have any on-screen chemistry with one another. Oh, I see. I'm sorry. I was, I was with you with the, you know, yes. putting the litmus paper into the, does it well, turn pink was, or does it turn blue? Exactly. That, well, that's what I thought was going to happen. Fortunately, exactly. I learned my lines anyway. But, um, so how, how was your chemistry with Rosamund Pike? Well, I mean, Rosmond is such an extraordinary actress. That, and this has been my, largely my experience working. I mean, I've worked with some really incredible actresses in my, in my career. And often, you know, my first on-screen wife, Samantha Morton, who was an incredibly intense actress, yeah, yeah. as we all know. So I was, I'm always very grateful to be able to repeat that sort of experience. And Rosamond is similarly dedicated and intense and you raise she raised you know you your game is raised immediately when you, when you're performing with people like that so uh, she was such a good actress we had fabulous chemistry <laughs> the um obviously the film's based on a graphic novel had you read the graphic novel before reading the script or did you look at it at all yeah i did obviously and um and i read the script by jack thorne who's obviously a great writer we were at national youth theater together when i was 17 wow which i'd which I completely forgot. Um, it was quite a boozy time. Uh, and I did that and I, bought, and I bought, you know, chemistry for dummies and things. Marjan was quite keen that when I was talking science, that it, I looked like I knew what I was talking about. 
<laughs> so we had chemistry, we had lessons in Budapest where we shot the movie. You know, a professor of the university came to teach us how to hold the equipment correctly. And I mean, I've forgotten it all now, but at the time I was, <laughs> uh, it was, I was quite good. So if I asked you to knock up some polonium or some, you know, some, some radioactive isotopes, you wouldn't be able to just knock them together in your kitchen. I would if I had the correct equipment, but it's oh, okay. quite hard. It's quite hard to get a hold of pitch blend in the middle of a pandemic. So. <laughs> and one of the things that's really interesting about the film is, I mean, obviously we've had, you know, biographies of Marie Curie before Greer Garson famously Oscar nominated for, um, for Madame Curie in 1943. Um, the thing about this is it's really, it's a kind of anti-biographical biography. It, it doesn't tell the story in the way that many biographies would, which are A to B to C. It's a film which, you know, Constantina's past, present, future. It has quite hallucinatory scenes bathed in the kind of, in the eerie light of discovery. Yeah. Tell us about the way the film looks, because it doesn't look like a classical biographical picture. No, you're right. I mean, I think Marjan sort of told us at the beginning, it's rather a biopic of radioactivity itself in a way, more than it is the Marion Pierre. Yeah. But we had a wonderful DOP, Anthony Dodd-Mantle, who um, you know, worked with Lars von Trier early in his career and did Slumdog Millionaire. And he did Rush with my wife, so I'd met him as well. And he's, you know, he's a, he's a, a character in himself on set, you know. I mean, he's, all, he's also a, you know, a genius in many ways. So, I mean, his, had the, you know, the, the places he puts cameras and things are quite extraordinary. So it felt like we were doing something, you know, different, if you like. There's a, at the centre of the story, there's, because obviously the, the subtitle of the comic is, uh, I think, is it, a, is it a story of radioactivity, a story of something and love, or uh, anyway, the, yes. the, something and love. And during the course of the drama, I mean, obviously the relationship between Pierre and Marie is absolutely central but there is this hideous tension because he starts to get recognized before she does. And there is a particular scene when he comes back from having received the, the Nobel prize on their behalf. And she just completely, suddenly all her pent up rage comes out. It's a very powerful scene. Tell me about that tension between them about they, you know, they were clearly in love, but there was a tension because they were in a world in which it was easier for him to be recognized than for her. You know what, Mark? I think the honest thing is that, that that was a sort of dramatic creation on the part of the production because they were so harmonious. That tension was was less existent in, in reality. They they she she gave him the go ahead to go. He he refused the Nobel Prize uh, um, at first because it only mentioned it was his just name. Him, yeah. Um, and then he went because she she was unwell, but he he went to go and collect it. But that, you know, they almost had to add tension. They were nauseatingly, um, you know, <laughs> close to one another. And that was what one of the things that fascinated me. You know, it's it wasn't a sort of a conscious, deliberate effort of equality on their parts. You know, it was it was a natural. It was just something that was went without goes went without saying. He had a very interesting childhood. He was raised by very, I suppose you'd say these days, forward-thinking parents, but it was a very relaxed atmosphere. He didn't go to school until he was much older. He was educated at home. And his, um, and his mother and father were incredibly affectionate with one another. And I think 
he was he recognized her brilliance early on and was never threatened by it he he saw that you know what he with what he knew and what she knew they could when their powers combine they <laughs> could um you know they could really move things forward um there's wonderful pictures of her you know at these conventions of scientists with einstein and Becquerel and and all the others where she's the lone figure there after he, after he died it was but she um she had a very rough time after after he this is a spoiler after he passed away she had an affair with a colleague a married man and was vilified for it in France yeah. you know she she's actually polish which i didn't realize which is why polonium is named polonium yep. and um she was one of the first people to be followed around by paparazzi. There are amazing pictures of these guys with enormous boxes chasing her around the street. Um, it's incredible times. But I mean, during that period of time, the late 19th century, there were incredible advancements in human technology, you know, flight, electricity, the watch, and then radioactivity. And amongst them, they were, they were really celebrities as well at the same time, but, but very modest. One of the things the film has to deal with is that radioactivity, when it was first discovered, nobody really understood exactly how powerful and uh, how dangerous it could be. And one of the threads that runs all the way through the film is this idea that that they are discovering something that is also unleashing a power which they then can't control. There's a moment when your character says, you know, I, I, it, it, it will, there will do more advantage than harm. But all the way through it, there is this this kind of sense that in the background, there is an idea that they are a dangerous couple because they are messing around with things that they don't understand. Can you tell us something about that tension in the film? Well, yeah, it, it, absolutely. And, and one of the frightening things, looking back at it now with the knowledge we have, is they, they never patented radioactivity or, or radium. They felt that the more people that could get hold of it, the more advances there would be. And people really went crazy with the stuff you know they made radium cigarettes radium yeah. matches and chocolates and and then people began to get ill from it but in his acceptance speech for the first nobel prize um i mean nobel which I'm, i only knew learned all this what we do but nobel discovered dynamite and similarly they felt that there had been enormous advancements in discovery due to the discovery of dynamite but obviously also the weapons of war so it's a balance between you know whether we benefit from understanding the secrets of nature or or whether more harm or more harm comes from it but you know he remained hopeful for what happened i mean obviously you know the, the cure for cancer which incredibly was further advanced by their eldest child who also won a nobel prize with the you know creating a synthetic radiation that, that was able is still used in the curing of cancer yeah. so it's it, it is remarkable so during her, i think i'm correct in saying she was the first woman ever to win a nobel prize the first person ever to win two nobel prizes yeah and yet as you say in the the later period of her life ended up being vilified being uh, portrayed as a kind of you know, as a almost demonic figure, somebody who had unleashed his power and now was having a relationship. Um, yeah. During the course of of, uh, of making the film, because it's so visually stylish, because it's so kind of unexpected, were you able to immerse yourself in the characters? I don't know what you, I mean, I remember asking you about when you'd made Control, I said, did you walk around for days being Ian Curtis? And you laughed and you said, 
well, yeah, kind of, because that's probably a character who's, I would imagine, slightly closer to what you were like then, you know, to imagine. But do you, do you immerse yourself? Do you become Pierre Curie during the, the course of doing it? Or do you get in, do the scene, do the shot, and then go back to being Sam Riley? Well, yeah, I think I'd always do a lot of homework. I enjoy that so much. And I was not particularly academic at school, but I always enjoy the preparation period of, you know, of immersing myself in as much of it as I could. You know, I was reading this again yesterday, which is amazingly, Marie Curie wrote a book about Pierre Curie. So there was a, which details his childhood and everything. So there's an enormous amount there to, you, you know, to get into. Yeah. For me, a lot of it comes also with the costume and makeup. And, um, you know, he's bearded, which I'm incapable of, unless you give me about three years' notice. Um, <laughs> so when I, um, you know, when, once that sort of happens, when, once you start seeing yourself change, I think both Rosmond and I felt a real, really deep connection with these two. There was something incredibly sympathetic about them and their love and their brilliance that we both did feel like we were we were able to disappear into it as we were doing it you know the the thing about method acting is is slightly been mythologized slightly because method is there are many different methods um but the idea that i would speak you know in character in between tapes is not it, it, if, unless I'm doing an accent, which, then I will sometimes. But it's a strange—it's a strange thing to do to the crew, you know. Especially if you're playing an asshole, and then you're an <laughs> asshole with the makeup lady. It's not—it's not really on. I've seen it done, Mark, but it's—it's it's not really something I'm. I've always been admire, admired some of the, some of the actors that I've worked with that, you know, that that are capable of joking before the take, and then suddenly they're not there anymore someone else you know and yeah i think whatever gets you through the night really obviously but but i always take the the uh, the preparation very very seriously yeah and i do try and disappear let me ask you, you you mentioned this thing about you said you can't grow a beard now i'm fascinated by this because i can't grow a beard because when i was a kid i fell out of a car and i've got these scars on my face where the beard doesn't grow. So if I grow a beard, I've literally, it looks like somebody's kind of gone at it with a, so now I'm intrigued when you say you can't grow a beard, what happens when you try to grow a beard? Well, I can grow a mustache, um, but the rest is just very, very patchy. So, and because I had a goatee at one point and then a full beard, it was a case of individually sticking yak hair <laughs> to my, uh, <laughs> Is it yeah? My face, yeah. <laughs> Which you know, no one wants to hear actors complaining about their working. But uh, wasn't particularly pleasant. The funny thing was, is that I've been told that if you can grow the moustache, then use your own moustache and keep the rest of the beard fake. Because if you laugh with a stuck-on moustache, it sort of pings off at the corner. <laughs> so me and, and Irene Barnard, who was playing my, um, my partner, we sort of looked like Japanese schoodles when we made some laugh because we had to hold them on. <laughs> Holding these, these things onto our faces. But it, but it, it works, you know. It, it, I've had in other jobs as well, you know, in, in Maleficent, I had 
you know, many hours in, in prosthetics. But I, f- I find it fascinating. You know, I've always been, when I was a little boy, I always took the games we played much more seriously than the other kids on the streets. You know, I would have to be in appropriate attire. <laughs> So did you get you got costumed up to play games as a kid? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, you always, and as, I always was the lead. I always had to play the lead. <laughs> were you known as weird theatrical Sam Riley down the road? It was yeah. It was I like, Run away! Let's not play. It's him. He's going to make us get into full costume. Yeah, we were playing gangsters, and I come out in one of my dad's old suits and things, you know, <laughs> dwarfed by it, of course. But yeah, I always, I always took those sort of things very seriously. I remember once that we were playing Lawrence of Arabia, which was my first obsession, I think, having watched it on Boxing Day or something. And I wanted to do the, I was getting my brother and a friend to do the scene where he gets tortured by the Turkish soldiers at a friend's house. And his mother looked out of the window to see these boys whipping me with a bamboo (laughs) cane in the garden and came out to bollock them. And I was like, no, it's all right. It's, it's, (laughs) It's the scene where I'm tortured. I'm Peter O'Toole. Leave me alone. Yeah, yeah so that was worrying. So, so, so were you, you basically, from, it sounds like from the earliest days, you were, you were an actor. You just hadn't become an actual actor. But that's what you, it sounds like that was what you always did. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, had, I, wanted, I was a musician before doing Control. I, I did National Youth Theatre, but I was writing plays at school when I was 12. You know, we, uh, we did a James Bond satire called James Blonde with a friend of mine and they stupidly let us perform it in the school church without having watched it first <laughs> when we were 12 <laughs> and I was naked and it and everything and there was a, there was absolute outrage but we were just trying to shock I was at a very strict school but I've always been you know I think my parents thought the music you know my foray into music was just a, a fad I'd always I was always going to be a lovey I think the first, you know, when you go on, when people, I wasn't very good at anything at school. And I remember getting applause uh, for something in a school play. And, and I, you know, like a lot of us, I think, well, I, I like that. Clapping. Yeah. Which instrument Clapping did you Clapping and play, laughter, Sam? you know. Say that again, sorry. Which instrument did you play? I played guitar, but not Any particularly good? well. I wrote the songs for the band. We were in a band called 10,000 Things. We were a pub glorified pub rock band from Leeds, but it was around the time of the Kaiser Chiefs when Leeds, we were called the New Yorkshire Dolls by the NME at one stage. That was the nicest they ever were to us. In wow. fact, it was, the, it was the NME, weirdly, that led me to being an actor in the end because they gave us at the time one of the worst reviews they'd ever given anyone. One out of ten we got. We're not even sure what the one was for, to be honest, if you read the... But that got us dropped, which then left me open to being to trying to be an actor again. When you say got dropped, so you were signed to a proper record company? Yeah, we, we did our first EP with Fiction, who were great. You know, they were... Yeah. And then we did the classic stupid thing. There were six of us in the band, and we were offered a major record deal with Polydor, or a subsidiary of Polydor, and we wanted the money, you know, so we didn't have to work anymore. <laughs> and obviously we then learned as a million other bands have that once you sign a major record deal you you know your your independence goes out of the out of the window in the end we didn't like the sound of the album and neither did they <laughs> and i well, think I can... that's partly why i've tried to remain doing my own thing since i've been an actor not really you know not 
not be pushed into doing what um what what my what my agents might have expected of me or something I can tell you very proudly that in the 1980s, um, I made a record with an independent record label that was second single of the week in sounds that week. And uh, I th- we, we, we were played, we, John Peel played our record. We were famous for, oh, about wow. four, yeah, for about four seconds. We were absolutely the biggest band in my house. And then it, but it was it was a wonderful four seconds it was exactly like that moment in that film good vibrations when they hear john peel playing uh, teenage kicks for the first time it was like i just remember being listening to the radio and hearing john peel introduce our record and thinking that's it i'm top of the pops must be next and then it wasn't (laughs) but it was it was an interesting moment so what are you doing now what's i mean obviously with everything with everything that's going on have you got plans for movies upcoming movies what's happening there were plans um but you know to be to be at home with no job prospects for the rest of the year isn't that unusual for me (laughs) 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 little joke um so it's strange my wife's about to start working again here in berlin with very strict measures and what have you yeah. and there's films coming out you know i did I, I did rebecca last year with ben wheatley for netflix yeah. and that's tell us about that how how was it because i'm so excited about the idea because the um because the script is by jane goldman and they sh- did you shoot in cornwall we were there it's in, it's incredible I'd, I'd never been we were at a place called clavelli yeah yeah i know it it was strange because i'd flown from germany to go there and the, the hotel was full of germans because they shoot a television series there, which is incredibly popular here. Um, so some of it was in Cornwall, some of it in, in and around London. But um, I've worked with Ben. This is, that's the third time that I've, I've worked yeah. with him. Yeah. And every time, I'm the caller cad for <laughs> <laughs> the renter rogue for Ben, which is a great position. To, you know, I'm very happy about that. So what can but we I expect? Work, I, what can we expect from that, Rebecca? Tell, so just tell me a little bit about it, because all, all Ben has said is, you know, the script's by, by Jane, you know, and uh, so tell us a little bit about it. What's the tone of it? Well, it's just, I, I watched it just the other night, and it's really great. You know, oh, cool. Ben, if, you, if you're, some of your listeners will be familiar with his work, um, and he's incredibly eclectic. He's done already several types of genres, but has his, his own stamp on things. And I think he's managed to do that here. You know, he, he's, he's taking something quite not conventional, but a literary adaptation. Obviously, he's done that with High Rise, but um, it's sort of, it has some of the, you know, the classic tonality of, of the original and the story, which is quite melodramatic and, and a thriller. But with his editing and his camera and, and everything, he's sort of managed to add this, he's always done menacing very well. You know whether it's yeah, Kill List absolutely. or or um, Field in England, and he sort of added added an aspects of that to this. And I think it's great. I mean, it's a brilliant cast. Um, Kristen Scott Thomas is playing Mrs. Danvers, which she could do in her sleep. You know, she's. Uh, <laughs> I've worked with her before. I worked with Army Hammer, who's playing Max De Winter. Yeah, and Lily James, who um, we did Pride, Prejudice and Zombies together. I'm sure you remember that one. I do remember that. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so it was great. I mean, I love, I love working with Ben. We did a movie together a couple of years ago. We were going to do a bigger budget film, which got pulled, the money got pulled. And he texted me and said, I'm going to do a version of um, Coriolanus, 
called Colin Uanus. And I wrote back, you know, lols. And then he wrote, well, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Will your wife be in it? I said, yeah. I said, thank you. I said, yes, on her behalf. And we shot this film in a week, 10 days, I think, and in, in a house on the South Coast, which is still available on BBC iPlayer, but it was sort of improvised with an amazing cast, a sort of a nightmare family, New Year's Eve get-together, post-Brexit. Yeah. Um, and I love, working, I love working with him. A, the yeah. fact that he continues to give me work. Uh, <laughs> a lot of directors have said, oh, we'll do this again. <laughs> but he's actually put his money where his mouth is. Are you, are you quite easy to work with? You seem terribly easygoing. You seem terribly, um, you know, open and friendly. I mean, believe me, I've interviewed actors who are <laughs> very spiky. You've never seen men. You seem very down to earth. Well, I'm very, ha- I, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm, lucky. I'm, so, I'm so grateful that I work. And um, it doesn't, you know, that's probably I'm a people pleaser, which probably isn't a good thing all the time. But uh, I just love working. I love being on set. It's a dream. It's my dream job, you know, since I was little. It's, it fascinates me how it's all comes together, the teamwork and the playing. You know, I love, I just love it. I love making, trying to make things real and, and all of that and all of that stuff and there's no you know it's you know i'm a northerner as well so my parents and my friends would jump on me from a great height if i started getting pretentious about my craft um (laughs) and i just enjoy it you know it's not it doesn't have to be that complicated and does it do you do you worry about uh, critics and you know do you read do you read reviews are you somebody who, who scans the reviews of your films stupidly sometimes yeah i mean what's the be- okay what's the okay what's the best and worst thing not you not your band but that's been said about you in a movie well i've always till now we'll see what you say once i've hung up um got away with uh with without really being singled out for too much um devastation um the be- i mean the best was control obviously and i think you know unless i get some f- freak occurrence in my career again. Now that was really heady days, you know, my first film premiere in Cannes. There were no other British films in competition, so there was a lot of focus on us there. I remember going to a cinema in New York for the first time where it had Sam Riley as a revelation on the side of the cinema. And I I remember my wife saying, enjoy this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, which Which I did. You know, I think... I've tried, I've, I've sort of, I, I dallied with social media with private accounts and things, but I, I, I'd rather, re- I'm probably more likely to remember the negative things. I don't really need that. I, I'd ra- I don't really want to know, I don't want to hear compliments nor criticism. If I can yeah. help it, it is de- it is definitely true. I think that that we only remember the negative things. I mean, you know, I'm a critic, but I've had, I've written stuff that's been reviewed, and some of it's been really nicely reviewed. I can't remember a single word of compliment. I can remember every every criticism. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's I can literally recite for you every bad thing that's ever been said, but I cannot remember the good things because somehow those things stick. Yeah, that's it's it's a, it's a sad it's a sad thing. I'm trying I'm trying to looking looking at all of it. Differently, really. Now I, I'm trying to look rather. I just enjoy the work. I enjoy the being on set and, uh, and the process, and what comes out the other end. You know, I have no control over either how it 
how it's put together nor what people think of it. So I, I really try just to enjoy the doing yeah. rather than what happens yeah. in my old and, age. And, and, and just so you don't know, I mean, my feeling about Radioactive is, and I mean this as a compliment, it is a very strange film. And I think that one of the things that really impressed me about it was that it, it wasn't the film I expected it to be. It's not, you know, it has almost no relation at all to what you think of as a biographical film. It is something completely But I think that's because, you know, performances are very, very strong. Majan Satrapi, with her background in graphic novels, has a kind of visual understanding like that. And yeah. as you say, it's Anthony Dodd-Mantle. And Anthony Dodd-Mantle, whenever you see Anthony Dodd-Mantle's credits on a film, you think, okay, there's going to be something unexpected about the way this yeah. looks. Because he does seem like somebody who comes into a room and goes, I'm not putting the camera where you'd think I'm going to no. put the camera. Gonna put, I'm going to shoot you through the yak hair of your beard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, he's he's incredible to watch, um, and it's a dream to get shot by people like that. You know, I love cinema, and if you're being part of something that is experimental, a bit different, it's really a thrill. Yeah. But I take yeah. that as a I take that as a as a compliment. That it's, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, strange. Should, no, but it is, and I mean, also to the point that I think. It's not, it's not frightened occasionally to be ridiculous. I would much rather see a film which takes risks and sometimes looks, you know, absurd than something which just plays it completely safe. I mean, I think all that stuff about, like, the moments in which she almost looks through time and sort of sees the history, where, you know, that's audacious. And, and I'd much rather see somebody attempt to do something exciting than just go well let's not do that let's just literally go and then she got up and then she met him and then she did this yeah i think that's been done and marjan felt that as well as you said it's been the the story's been told before it needs to, if it's going to be told it needs to be told in a new way yeah and i think and i think she i think she managed that you know sometimes when we're describing the science there are graphical images to sort of explain what what that what that means you know and what, and what and what they're talking about and i think those bits work really well um and i love marjan have you ever interviewed her no i mean i'm a fan of her films but i've never met her she's crackers you know she's really <laughs> she, she's really out there and so it's you know she's a force she's she could be on the periodic table herself you know? she's really, <laughs> she's really something so it's it's incredible it's 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 really impressive to watch someone with, with that vision, you know, confident yeah. in, what they're, in what they're doing. Yeah. Sam, listen, it's been great talking to you. Let me ask you one last thing. It's so brilliant that you've still got the Kermode Award. Did you have to go and drag it out of a basement or is it actually somewhere that it was easy to find? My, no, there are, they're downstairs. My, my son walked into the room. He doesn't realise really what mummy and daddy do yet, but he saw all these prizes downstairs. And he stingled this one out. Excellent. Pride of place. Excellent. <laughs> Sam, thanks ever so much. Um, great that, the, that there is a theatrical opening uh, in, uh, in Germany. As I said, for everyone else here, you can see it on, uh, on VOD. Really looking forward to Rebecca, because I'm a big fan of Ben Wheatley, and he's been talking about that project for a long time. And uh, I, you know, I hope that when all this is over and things get back to normal, you can come on the stage show live at the South Bank when we're back in the BFI. So I love an invitation to you whenever the Thanks. moment is ready and whenever you, you know, whenever you're in town, please do come on. It'd be lovely to have you. Thank you very much. I love that, Mark. Thank us. you.
That was Sam Riley, and if you want to see Radioactive, it's currently available from a range of digital streaming sources. Finally, on this week's edition of Kermit on Film, I spoke to director Faisal Belifa and screen newcomer Roxanne Scrimshaw about their terrific new movie, Lynn and Lucy. It's a really extraordinary film, and we'll speak to Faisal and Roxanne in just a moment. First, here's a clip from Lynn and Lucy. You know, at school there was a lot of rumours about you two. Yeah, like, that you were, um, you know, lesbians. <laughs> you know, teenage boys and their fantasies. <laughs> Yeah, you, Lucy, everyone wanted to bang you. And, and uh, you, though, Lynn, you, you've really grown into yourself. You know what, though? They were right. About what? About us. <laughs> we're together. <laughs> what, you just said you've got a little boy? Yeah, it's our, our little, little boy. boy. What? Yeah, we need it with some spunk. And let's be honest, you can get that anywhere. No, you're joking. Babe, show the tattoos. Shame, innit? Oh, listen. Oh my God, is this? Oh, we love this song. This is our song. song. Sorry, Tim. (laughs) Faisal, where did the inspiration for this story come from? So I think it was in around 2015, I read um, a news story um, describing uh, a young mother who was um, implicated in the death of her child along with her boyfriend but then acquitted and um when she was acquitted she was sent back to her her um her, her community and there she was uh, harassed in and kind of there was a campaign of harassment against her and she ended up killing herself and this kind of this was obviously a very unpleasant story but also it's very typical of what you can read in the tabloids in in england and um you know, it stayed with me and I, I wasn't sure why. Like, I think it has something to do with where I grew up, which was kind of similar place but in, in Leicester. Um, and then it became really an idea for a film when I imagined that it wasn't this woman or it wasn't someone resembling this woman who was the main character, it was her best friend. Because that position seemed very interesting for me to explore that environment. And it also seemed... There was something very tragic about the story, I suppose, in like terms of the working classes turning against each other, which it in this kind of very like pressure cooker environment, it felt it felt somehow like a fable or a tragedy in the, in the classical sense. And so, and this character who became Lynn seemed to me a kind of a tragic character actually, who's a, a fundamentally decent person. She's a mother. She she wants the best of her family, she's, she hasn't had opportunity in her life. She's lived somewhat in, in, in Lucy's shadow. And then this, the, 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 the tragedy which befalls Lucy gives Lynn a, um, some power in her community. And this power becomes kind of, in, in a way, a very, a very bad thing for, for, for Lynn. And so there's this, this idea of, 
asking why, like why, why would someone turn against someone from their community in that in that way, and why would someone turn against their best friend? Felt kind of quite relevant to to the kind of to to what we live now, which is kind of a world of kind of absolutes. And for Lynn, she's kind of forced into a position of taking making an absolute decision in what is an ambiguous situation. Roxanne, tell us about how your character gets into that position of having to make an absolute decision in an ambiguous situation. I mean, did you, when you, when you play a character, do you sink into the role? Do you become that character? How does it work for you? This is my first time acting, so everything is based on this one role. So I don't know about other roles. But um, I think there was some slight similarities between me and Lynn, like coming from a sort of, an enclosed area, like a small community. Everyone knows everyone. Like even growing up, we had a hair salon that was very similar. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I find there was a lot of, I wouldn't say I'm like Lynn. I'm more louder and probably more of a Lucy. But when that, when it happened to Lucy's child, it was a case of she was given the opportunity to find the power and then she had to choose between the best friend she had known all her life or this whole new setting where she believed she was going to get more friends. She was become, she was going to become somebody. And I think that's where it went wrong. If she, she didn't stick to what she knew, she wanted to go down other channels and then, yeah, just, she didn't, I don't think she felt thought it through. She just sort of like went in that moment and very little thinking. Tell us how you got the roles. It's your first role and it's a starring role. <laughs> How did it come about? Um, Facebook. I was sitting at home one day, just scrolling through Facebook, and I see um, a post on the local community page saying I was looking for women and to like be a lead role in a film. At first, I was like, nice, no, a bit scammy. They probably just want the email address. They could spam <laughs> them with stuff. And so I just sort of ignored it. And then my mum sent me a link from Barkin and Dagnan Post, our local paper, where they advertised it there as well. And I was like, if it's in the paper, it might be a little bit more legit. And so I just sent in my pictures at a Skype call and then, yeah, I was getting invited up for castings, but I didn't even realize there were castings. I just was really excited to have a day out. And then before I knew it, yeah, I was given the role and it was weird, but amazing at the same time. I don't think I realized what I was doing until I'd finished, until we'd finished filming. Like I was just sort of like going with the flow and enjoying it. So how did the audition process work? What was the audition like? Um, I think the first couple was just basic chats asking about me and I don't know what they thought it was doing, but for me personally, I was just talking to people who were being really nice to me and wanted to talk to me. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was more towards, um, towards the ends of the casting where we started like maybe working with a version, like or a couple of lines from the script and I think to see how I'd play them out. And then I met Lucy, Nicola, like she was amazing and then yeah it for me it was honestly just like days out and talking to people who wanted to talk to me about me so it was really nice so i know we're mates and everything but i thought i'd try to keep it professional you know yeah of course just looking for your cv can't remember seeing it actually since i was leaving school i've been a stay-at-home mum oh i did a bit of work experience but this would be my first proper job. Right, so what made you want to start work now? 
Well, you know Paul was in the military and he got injured, so... Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Did you see, like, loads of dead bodies in that? No. He wasn't in, like, a war zone or anything. He was doing a training exercise. Yeah, he's taking it quite bad because he thought he was going to be, like, an action hero or something. But now he's just at home. Right. So, you wouldn't exactly say that you were passionate about hair? No. You seen this? So, Faisal, Roxanne said, I don't know what it was like from their end. How was that casting process working for you? What was, what was your, your method, your technique? Um, so, we, we were looking at um, a lot of non-professional actors. So, we were kind of... Um, um, I was working with a casting director, Lara Mannering, who had a lot of experience doing that. Um, and when we started, we were, we were kind of pretty open-minded in the sense that we were looking at professional actors and we were looking at non-professional actors. So we were kind of street casting and we were going through traditional channels. Um, and, you know, quite early on in that process, I think we came up against the fact that there just aren't many working class actors in, in, in England. Or there aren't enough in any case, and the situation seems not to be improving. At that point, we 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 kind of gave more of our energy to, to street casting, and that's a kind of it's a very weird process because it's you know there's no there's no guarantee, and you kind of start from the point that you're looking for someone who maybe has some similarities to the to the, the character as written, but that brings, of course, many different complications so you know we we, we kind of it, it was tricky and then um you know i i i think lara had a chat with roxanne which i saw and at first i thought okay roxanne is she immediately i found her very interesting because she was i think she was talking about raising raising chickens and i grow chickens yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and it, it felt like someone very open and very i think which is which proved to be true someone very open-minded and kind of very much up for a very weird experience <laughs> um but I, I i felt like maybe she as, as roxanne just said like she's probably closer to lucy in real life than she is to lynn so that was kind of the, the thing that i wasn't sure about and then and then we met and you know i think the, the process is really for me it's 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 about meeting people that interest me, I think, quite simply. And then, and then when, you, when you find someone intriguing, you get excited about them. It's really a case of you start to imagine, okay, so how does this, what does this character become if this person plays them? Because it's always different, you know, whatever you, you write on the page is, is fundamentally changed by, by who you choose to, to play that role. Um, and with Roxanne, like, she was, very natural in the in the um in in the casting which was a huge of, of course the most important thing was that she 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 was a great actress from the beginning like there was just an instinct there um and then you know what i liked that roxanne like i could i, I think i could see in roxanne this potential to kind of bring to life this transformation that lynn has I suppose, like I could see that, you know, uh, she could, she could kind of represent in every woman, but she could also become something kind of more glamorous and stronger towards the end. And that was really important. 
So, um, you know, it, the, it, it was a simple case of just meeting Roxanne several times and imagining the, what the film would be and doing some casting, you know, try, trying to see the different sides of Lynn in, in, in that casting. I, th I think it worked out very well. Roxanne, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that you were, uh, that you rose chickens because with, this is weirdly something that we have in common because I don't have many more, but I used to have chickens. But then yeah, I, I love chickens. I think we had, we had a whole bunch of morants. We had, we had cockerels, we had hens. It was one of the happiest periods. Um, so I'm delighted that we have that in common. Um, Faisal was saying that, you know, that you are a natural uh, actor. Um, Thank you. <laughs> do you is this is this now what you would see as uh, you know as as, as 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 your future? Because I mean, your performance in the film is is terrific. I don't think anybody would get the sense that it's it's your first performance. Um, thank you, <laughs> but um, honestly, I would love to. It was never something previous to this. It would never have even crossed my mind someone like me could even do something like that. But now that I've done it, like from what you see in the film, like it's very, it can be dark, it can be tragic. There's a lot of emotional, but every single scene, I loved it. Like it was the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. And a hundred percent, if anybody wants to cast me, I'm, I'm here, I'm ready. <laughs> but honestly, I would love to continue this. More so, I think more so to prove that, you can do it. You don't have to come from a privileged background, go through drama school, have like all these connections in like them sort of fields. You can just stroll off the street and change your life if you want to. And that's what I did. Thank you. Thank you, Faisal and Lara and everyone else that helped put me there. But honestly, I would, it'd be my dream. I don't want to go back to working in Asda's and all these other places. They're too strict. <laughs> Can you tell us what it's what it's been like? Because the film's had a terrific response, and uh, you know the, the the responses to it have been really, really positive. What was it? When did you first see the film with an audience? Um, San Sebastian. We tell had our premiere. That. Yeah, what was it like? Oh, it was amazing. Like, because the whole gang, like all the cast, went up there, and it was literally just like a girls' holiday of a couple of guys. It was so amazing, and then when you're sitting there and seeing it on big screen and you can see the reaction from people, I think that was like, Oh my God, like it's real. I can do this. Like I've done this and people like it, but it was, it's one of them experiences. It doesn't matter what else comes. It never, it never beats your first time. Does it? <laughs> Faisal, what about you? I mean, obviously you, know, you have a history in short films and this is your first feature as writer director. How, how do you feel about the response to it? It must be greatly, uh, greatly encouraging how well the film's been received. Yeah, it's, um, it, it was strange, like in San Sebastian, I really felt like, despite having, you know, so many years making short films and going out to festivals, it, it's such a different thing when it's a feature film and your film is playing, you know, you, when, when, when you make short films, you get used to playing in a program of five, six, seven films with the directors there. And it's, it's a different thing when people have come really to see your film. Um, so in that sense, it was it was it was it was nerve wracking for me, um, and it's a challenging film as well. You know, it's not it, it it's not it, it's a film that is meant to challenge and meant to provoke in some way, and meant to kind of provoke a debate that is. And, but I'm I'm you know I'm I'm happy that I think the the kind of the power of the film is is being recognised and people are responding to, it, especially the performances. 
because that was something really important for me was to to, to find some authenticity in the performances and also to, to have the characters be brought to life by working class women. Um, and, you know, we had one of the interesting things in the film was that Nicola, Nicola Burley, who was a professional actor, she was originally streetcar um, when she was young by Dominic Savage for the film Love and Hate. And so there was this kind of mirroring of Nicola's experience and Roxanne's experience. And um, I think that was, that was, great in many ways. So it was two working class actresses who came up through like um, uh, unconventional way and came into the industry in an unconventional way. But also they, I think they kind of instinctively understood each other, especially Nicola understood what Roxanne was going through and had a kind of immediate respect for that because she knew that it was, you know, there wasn't this kind of snobbery of, okay, well, you know, you haven't been to drama school or you haven't done, done this. And I think this, this was important in the film. And, you know, one of the things that's happened in the festivals is that these two performances have been recognized. And not only have they been recognized, but they've been kind of, you know, they, they've shared the Best Actress Prize in a few festivals, which I think is really nice because it, it you know, it, it puts, it presents these two performances as a kind of equally strong and equivalent in different styles, but, um, you know, and also kind of, I suppose, recognises the fact that these are kind of two female roles that are quite complex and quite ambivalent and quite dark. So I, 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 I'm, I'm really happy that, that, that these performances have been recognised. Look, congratulations to both of you for the success of the film. Let me end by asking you both, um, what are your plans for the future? Um, Roxanne, what are your immediate plans? Um, I won an Oscar, but... <laughs> um, but I have no plans. I'm just going with life. I would love to be able to probably get an agent or like get more roles. I just want to do it a million times over. <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't give you an Oscar. I can virtually give you one of these. Oh my Roxanne, God. Congratulations. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to start crying, but I won't. <laughs> um, but no, I think it's just, at the moment, it's the reality being a mum, just getting by day by day. And then long run purposes, I would love to be able to do this more. But until lockdown's over, we don't really know what's going on anymore. So we're just going to enjoy life as much as possible. Have you got an agent? No. In the words of, uh, I, remember, I think it was Sean Connery was once asked, somebody said to him, you know, tell me, I'm an actor, I'm, I'm really important. And he said, get an agent. And they went, yeah, no, no, I know. But you know, what else? They went, get an get agent. Get an agent. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully Faisal, soon. <laughs> Faisal, what about you? What's on the horizon? Um, so obviously right now we're gearing up for the release. Um, so that is kind of taking up a lot of my time and it's, it's very exciting. And beyond that, um, so I, I'm, I'm working on a, a second feature film, which uh, will be very different. It's going to take place in Morocco. But um, you know the, the the lockdown has been has been a good moment to to kind of to work on to write basically. But yeah, beyond like it's obviously it's a very um, situation. It's very we're kind of heading into the unknown in some sense of what's what's going to happen in the in the filming. Yeah. How that's going to impact shoots. But um, I think you just have to kind of keep the faith and carry on with your projects in the hope that, you know, we're, we're, you'll, you'll get there eventually. So that's where I am now. 
Well, I wish the both of, uh, both of you the best of luck with the film and with your future Thank projects. You. Thanks Thank so you. much for coming Thank on the you. show. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. My thanks to Faisal Belifa and Roxanne Scrimshaw, and you can find Lynn and Lucy very soon on BFI Player. Thanks for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast. Coming next week, our special guest is the one and only Kathleen Moran. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then tell your friends, remember to subscribe, and incidentally, if you want some extra exclusive content, why not visit our Patreon page? Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.